Penny Joy, and this is Cooperative Journal, where I spotlight the stories of how people are collectivizing to meet their needs locally and globally beyond the extractive economic system. Manyverse is an open source, decentralized social network. Rather than a company controlling data and communication, the user has complete ownership and responsibility. Their goal is to make social networking independent of internet connectivity, allowing for off-the-grid communication when disconnected from the internet. In this episode, I speak with founder Andre Stoltz about transforming social networks into a method of communication and community, not a business. He shares why the interweb is dying, what it means to decolonize social networking, dissolving hierarchy in social media platforms, how they receive financial support, and a new vision for the World Wide Web. Thank you so much, Andre, for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been diving deep into open source um online networks since I've learned about Manyverse and it's really opened my eyes to so many things that I hadn't thought about in terms of the web um, and how it's quickly transforming and that decentralization is the future of it. Um, So I would love for you to share what Manyverse is. Thanks. Um, So Manyverse is... um... Well, I'll try to put it in not technical terms because it's a lot of technical details, but it's a social network, kind of like Facebook, kind of like Twitter, um, but it doesn't have all the bad stuff. What we call bad stuff are centralization, ads, tracking, you know, user privacy violations, all that kind of stuff. Um, so basically, it's it's just the idea of social networks removing all of the stuff that we don't want. And it's a project run, uh, it's completely open source and it's um, donation driven. So there's no monetization model. It's not a business. We're not a startup. Uh, it is just sort of like, we want to make this thing exist for humanity. And it would be great, you know, if it doesn't have all these negative sides. How can we get the, the good sides of social network without the bad sides? On technical terms, it's a, uh, so-called SSB client. Um, SSB is the sort of protocol that un- underlines it. But um, there's other podcasts I've been interviewed for that go more into the technical details. So um, we can talk about any kind of thing. And SSB stands for Scuttlebutt, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, It stands for Secure Scuttlebutt. That's a new internet protocol made for social networks um, that sort of functions a little bit like what you expect in Twitter, um, but it's decentralized, meaning that it's not like all built on a single platform or a single uh, startups servers or things like that. It's like open and free to use and these kind of things. Yeah, I was reading a little bit about Scuttlebutt and they identify themselves as a method of communication and community, not a business, which I think is really what um, differentiates it from like traditional social networks that really see people as a business and um, really try to harvest all of the data they can in order to make money off of them. Yeah, I mean, it, that's a great description. I don't know where you read it from, but um, it's it's uh, it's really about that. We also talk a lot often about um, how the computer systems should mirror the human systems. Um, and often um, with traditional social networks, they don't because um, let's imagine that you're going to meet a friend um, out. And um, in real life, you would just meet your friend directly maybe in someone's house, maybe in a, in a relative's house, maybe in your family's house. Um, 
but on traditional social networks, you meet them always in a huge shopping mall, essentially. Um, so the way that we do it in Scuttlebutt is that you literally meet these people in some friend's server, essentially like some friend's house. Um, so it's all like the, the infrastructure of the whole community is driven by people. And uh, if there is a need for a server, it's usually hosted by someone that you know, someone that they trust. And in this way, it really sort of mirrors how friendships actually are or should be in the real world. Mm. Yeah, I remember reading something um, that you said it, the connections embody natural interactions, which I would love to learn more about later on in the conversation of how the app actually works. Um, but I want to go deeper into um, some of the issues with the web as it currently is. In one of your talks, um, you made an adamant statement that the web is dying and that social web lacks trust, innovation, transparency, freedom, and respect. And so I would love for you to elaborate more on that. Right. So um, the way how the web was built, um, you know, it was quite rushed when you think about it. Like, you know, the, the movements of startups in the, let's say, around 2005 or 2000, um, people just started building a bunch of services and competing really fast. And I don't think they had a really a sort of long-term perspective on it, um, on all of these aspects that you just raised from my previous talk. Um, and we really need to think about how should this be in the very long run? Um, we want this, like now everybody's using social networks, everybody depends on it. And in cases like, you know, Brazil or developed countries, people need it literally for business and just like livelihood. Like, let's say there's a, there's a hairdresser or there's a house builder that, you know, gets all of this information, like of clients, all from WhatsApp. It's completely based on WhatsApp. Um, so we need to look into the very long future and consider, okay, this is going to be the very, a very fundamental part of society. Like from now on into the future, how do we like build all of those aspects that we need, um, such as, you know, trust and user agency and, um, being able to determine your future, right? Like what if you're just a normal um, uh, worker in, in Brazil and then suddenly you get banned from WhatsApp? For what reason? You can't even contest it. You can't recover your account. Suddenly your business has disappeared. What is the future for those people? We want to wanna give like a, a good solution that lasts for, for many decades. Yeah, because when our data is on this centralized corporate server, uh, if they decide to shut it down, then we're really at their whelm. Um, and, and also it's never good to put all your eggs in one basket. Like we need uh, different systems to rely on when others don't work like for instance that day that Facebook shut down and people are like wow I can't communicate with people that I only was able to communicate through this platform um, it really it really creates a lack of resilience yeah I think resilience is really the word and um, one interesting aspect of Manyverse is that it works even if you don't have internet and the way that it works is, um, uh, and this is a concrete use case that I've, I'm in contact with some people that are in indigenous communities and some other people that are in uh, what is in, in the Amazon basin. You know, there's a lot of uh, rivers and villages along the river and those villages often don't have internet, uh, but they do have smartphones and smartphones are quite ubiquitous. People, you know, have them even in very remote places. 
those people sometimes they visit a village that has internet, and that's when they use the internet. But otherwise, their phone is not that much active. Um, so what Manyverse can do is that two phones that let's say don't have internet right now, they can talk to each other by Bluetooth. They can talk to each other by Wi-Fi, and that way they can like spread data to each other. And this has been like a really important use case for those people because they can get um, updates um, from each other. Like, you know, there could be, let's say sometimes one person goes to a village far away and they can bring data from the internet uh, in, in Miniverse because the, all of the data is in Miniverse in their app on their phone, not in the cloud somewhere. It's on the phone. So they can literally bring that data to the people that are offline. So they travel and by traveling, they bring the data. And uh, I think that's pretty, pretty incredible because it really uh, displays that you don't need anything external. You just need your phone. And that's enough to create a social network. You don't need an account somewhere. You don't need to pay. You don't need internet. And oftentimes, also internet um, uh, plans are expensive uh, for these people. Yeah, that makes me think of um, the levels of hierarchy that I've also read that you've talked about. Um, and you talk about two tiers of hierarchy, but this makes me think of another form of hierarchy of like the developed world and the underdeveloped world, so they call it, um, and the haves and have-nots. And it really puts people on a level playing field. Yeah, and there's also, I mean, other like uh, powers there involved, right? There's also the internet service provider that in some cases they charge too much. Uh, sometimes they put bandwidth caps that are you know, too short and people can't use enough data. Um, so there's all these kind of powers involved when the phone that we have in our hand is very capable. It's like, it's a very amazing device and it can transfer from phone to phone directly. Like that's totally possible. Um, but there's just like no business in that, you know, there's no business in transferring data from one phone to the other. Um, and that's that's what we're doing because we're not we're not a business we're a nonprofit uh, project and our only goal is to make this possible, um, and and that's that's what we're trying to do. In 2018, you had this TED talk where you said that there's more people addicted to Facebook than tobacco, and yeah. at that time it was 1.2 billion daily active uses of Facebook. Yeah. Now it's 1.9. So just imagine. 1.9. I, yeah. I, I didn't know that updated stat, by the way. <laughs> it's crazy. So just imagine the amount of monetization they are getting from people yeah. interacting with these social networks. Um, so, yeah, there definitely needs to be a transformation in how we're utilizing them because it's really taking away our autonomy we're yeah. just being used as like pawns to yeah create more wealth for these corporations yeah um on on that note uh, one interesting thing uh what happens there and how do they get that uh wealth is really by um well obviously ads but what ads are at a more fundamental level is that they're stealing your attention so every third facebook post is an ad so that uh, basically gives you like irrelevant content among all of the content that you would like to read. It gives you irrelevant content. Um, so it's really sort of like decreasing our, our life essentially, because like if, when you think about it, uh, everything that you pay attention to during the day, that's your life. Your life consists of everything that you pay attention to, whether it's uh, your partner or your children or the work that you do, all of that is your attention. So Facebook is just like uh, extracting all of that attention from you and creating wealth from it. So one thing that we see in, in Scuttlebutt and Maniverse, since it doesn't have ads, um, you really uh, sort of get only what you want. You don't like have to needlessly 
scroll a lot and try to hunt that content that you want is just get the content. Um, and there's not this extractive processing uh, process happening in the background. Hmm. Yeah, it's not all of these external distractions, which we experience just like on a daily life walking down the street too, especially if you're in a city. Um, you're always being bombarded by things that uh, take you out of what you really should be focusing on, which is uh, like being present and the interpersonal interactions that you have. Um, so in um, conjunction with the hierarchy of traditional social networks between the people that run it and the people that use it, uh, one of the softwares that eliminates this is called Local First. And can you explain what that is? Oh, Local First is just a concept. I briefly touched on it. Um, it's just this idea that uh, let's say when you post something on a social network like Twitter, it first goes to the cloud. So if, if it can't go to the cloud, let's say if you don't have internet connection, it's not going to go anywhere. It's, it's not going to be posted. Uh, contrast that with something like your, your camera on your phone. Every time you take a, phone, uh, ca uh, sorry, a picture, it's always on your phone first. So it's local. It's stored on the device first. And then you can choose to share it if you want. So it always, it's always there on your phone. It doesn't require internet. And that same concept we started using for posts on social networks. So when you post something, it's first like stored as a file on your phone. That's it. And then later, uh, let's say if you have internet right now, then it gets shared immediately to your friends. But if you don't, then it stays on your phone. And then eventually when you get internet, let's say in the case of people in the Amazon rainforest, then later it will be transferred to them. But that idea of that first is local. And uh, we emphasize locality because it gives um, also the user more control. Like you know, just think of your gallery of pictures on your phone. Those are your pictures. Those belong to you and you have, uh, you know, control over them. They're yours. And then you can choose to, to share it. Uh, further. And I think that's also, um, you know, we have principles in Scuttlebutt uh, such as decolonization, and it's important that we don't uh, depend on an external um, company or agency or, or something, um, because that's also a way how they can uh, push uh, values and, you know, ads and whatever to us. And I see this uh, concept quite often when I uh, interact with, with the, I have some friends uh, who work with the indigenous communities in Brazil, and it's difficult to sort of block all of that, um, all of that content coming from the Western world to those indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. um, and if they would use Scuttlebutt, they just have their community content. They don't, you know, necessarily get stuff or updates from somewhere else in indigenous communities where they're not really receiving westerners coming to that area because and i've seen those instances too where westerners come and they're like boasting all of their wealth and all these material things uh, that the indigenous people might not have access to and then that creates a sense of scarcity uh so now they're doing it with social networks where you don't even have to have like personal interactions with people. You're just being bombarded with it through the internet. Yeah. Decolonizing social networks. I love that. Yeah. Colonization is a, you know, a thing that's still very actively happening. Um, Silicon Valley is exporting a lot of their culture and there has to be a pushback. Um, there has to be, an alternative, an answer to that for those people who have the conviction that, you know, this is not correct. Exactly. Well, since you started talking about how the app works, maybe you can go into some more detail because 
since it doesn't work on a centralized data server, it's localized. Um, building a social network between users is a bit different. You can't just browse through existing content and find random people to connect with. So can you explain how the app works to weave connections that embody these natural interactions you were talking about? Sure. So um, one of the necessary things, so like you could either use it as a, you know, offline community, like I described before with Amazon communities, but often what people do when they have internet is that they use some intermediate server. Um, and that's usually run by people that we trust. Someone, uh, let's say, who's a bit more tech inclined will uh, host server and then people will get to use that server. So everything is based on invites. We, we learned that invites are very important for community safety, for avoiding spam, for avoiding abuse. It's very important that um, people who are in the community invite other people. So we don't actually have any way of, let's say, you know, install the app and look up people and send them messages. That's like literally impossible. Um, you would have to know someone who knows someone who can invite you so they go to the common server and then uh, then you start meeting people through that. And just to give a little bit of more details on the server, uh, there's actually um, no user data stored on the server at all because as I said before, it's local first. So all of the data is on the phone. And that means that my phone will also transfer to my friend's phones, but it does that through this server. So the server acts just like a bridge that just passes data left to right. It doesn't store the data. It actually has no idea what the data is because it's encrypted. So it's like protected from anyone seeing what it is. It's only meant for your friends. Um, so that's, that's how it works. And we, we want to keep this invite flow because it, uh, it really is a, is a good compromise between um, safety and connections. And it's important to talk about safety too, because often in you know, decentralized systems, uh, any kind of people can use it. And there could also be very bad people using it. And those very bad people could you know, get data from you and we don't have moderators. Like there's, there's no moderators like there are in uh, Facebook and Twitter. So we can't like manage all the content centra centrally from one place because it's not centrally. So this concept of invites are very important for community safety. And honestly, I've seen extremely little spam and abuse. They are like very, very rarely. Hmm. Yeah, that's something that's so common in traditional social networks to get spam and even scammers like now there's this huge issue of scammers with cryptocurrency on instagram and you think that it's someone that you trust that is making this content but it's being hacked by someone and it's yeah it's really hard to filter through what is true and what's not um and especially um even in like the crypto world, which is decentralized, it's hard to know like what's real and what's fake because like you said, there is no one moderating it. So the only, um, I guess, reliable moderators are each other. Yeah. So um, I think the, the, I, so, it would be good to talk about social networks versus social media. Um, I think something like Twitter is clearly social media where, uh, you know, you can make an account, you can broadcast everybody. But I think a social network is much more about uh, allowing people to talk to each other only if they know each other somewhat. Um, for instance, I talked to, to a friend because I know that friend from another friend. Uh, and in this way, you, you have this so-called social graph, like this person knows that person who knows that person. And this concept is, is really great for, uh, for safety and community safety. 
because uh, trust is something that you don't want to lose. And in the case of like a social media, you know, like Twitter, you don't really need trust. Um, you can post uh, things that are offensive. And if you get banned, guess what? You can make a new one. You can make a new account. And there you go. You can keep on doing that. And you can make bots, whatever. But with something like a social graph, if you lose trust of some people in the community and you uh, get removed, then the only way to come back is by being invited again. So that consequence, uh, which is very natural, is something we've always done in communities, uh, keeps people from abusing and doing, you know, going too too beyond and just. Um, so it's it's a very natural concept that we found, and we we want to preserve it, but we also want to find ways of making onboarding easier, so that you know, if people want to use this, it should be easy to connect. Um, so. We're doing a lot of work on how to onboard people easily. Right. The community is holding each other accountable. And how does that work? Are, so if someone says something offensive, you can block them and that's just blocking them from you or are they able to get blocked from the platform in general? Yeah. So that uh, dynamic is uh, still quite complex and there's some work that we're going to do to improve it, but essentially works like this, that uh, once someone does something offensive, you can block them. And that means that uh, you won't see them anymore, but also on a connection level, you know, on the actual internet sort of data passing from left to right, you can't pass data to them anymore. So that means that they can't get your data anymore. Mm. Um, and how does that work with other people? So, we don't have this right now, but we have research that was done, like literal academic research uh, for automatically blocking. Let's say a friend of yours would block someone offensive, then you would also automatically detect that and block them as well. So we have research for that. Um, currently, it's not like that. But what we do is that as soon as someone blocks, we manually tell other people like, hey, I, I recommend you also block them. Mm. And then like once you know three or four people have blocked then it's sort of enough to shield uh the community away from that person because of the way that data spreads is usually from friends to friends right. so um it's sort of complex to explain but essentially um what it means is that the blocked person will have a harder time to get data from you or your friends, the more they are blocked, essentially. Right. And speaking of data, how is that even managed? How can you be sure that the data from Manyverse isn't taking up all the storage on your phone? Right, and that's also something that we're <clears throat> actively researching. Um, so one of the problems, it, it, it does take a lot of space, period. Um, that's it, currently on my phone, it takes one gigabyte. Um, and it has actually data of the last five years. So, you know, one gigabyte divided by five, you know, 200 megabytes per year, something like that. And um, so in the future, what we want to do is automatically delete things from the past. And we already did research and some development to achieve that um, but we need to finish it um, but that's how it would work uh, i think in a normal case you would have about 200 megabytes of data or maybe even less maybe it's configurable but you would have that much of social data on your phone uh, it really depends on how people want to manage their data uh, some people have you know let's say 10 gigabytes of photos and um, that's okay for them. Some people have less or more. Um, so I think 200 megabytes is doable. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, uh, the Facebook app itself, just by installing it from fresh uh, start, it already starts with 200. So mm -hmm. let's see, but uh, that's the future and we're getting there little by little. 
And then people can always like manually delete things right now, right? Oh, so that's the part that will probably surprise you and your listeners. Uh, deletes are difficult. And the reason why they're difficult is the same reason as email. So let's say you send an email to someone and then you feel like, oh, I want to delete it. I don't want that person to get it anymore. It's not possible. Once the person gets the email, they got it. Um, and in another case, like let's say in the Amazon community where um, it might take days for a person to travel physically from one village to another. And then let's say that the person in the original village, they regret what they wrote and they want to delete it. There's no way of immediately making it go poof all around the world because it was mm -hmm. transferred from phone to phone. Um, that said, we, we want to do things to improve this and we have some ideas, um, but I feel like we're always going to bump into that fundamental problem similar to email. Um, on the other hand, this also helps. So it's, it's, it's tricky. I do know that it can be a problem for community safety. Let's say in case you accidentally write your home address there and you're like, I need to delete this. Um, so that's a, that's a problem that we, we, we need to find ways avoiding that. But it can also work on a positive side um, because people are a bit more considerate when they write emails, right? They're a bit more deliberate, a little bit more like, I will check this before Princess end. And that effect we also want to have in the, in the community. But um, I also want to be honest, you know, these are hard problems and we want to think about them, you know, with good commitment and trying to do our best. Right. Well, I mean, that also speaks to the natural interactions you were talking about, because in an in-person interaction, if you say something that you didn't mean exactly. to say, you can't just delete it. You delete what you say. <laughs> Forget what I said, like sort of men in black type of, let me erase your memory right now. Exactly. Exactly. Well, how many users are on the platform currently? So it's a... Uh... Yeah, that's also difficult to measure because we don't know people might be using it offline. We, we don't have like a central number, but we do have estimates. Um, so it's at least 20,000. Um, we have wow. detected that there's around 20,000 different IDs. Um, it is quite tiny in internet scale. It's quite tiny, but it does make for a lively community. That's, you know, very, very, you know, a lot of things happen there. There's not just, programmers there's all kinds of uh leftists and anarchists and permaculture people and um very interesting people there um yeah i i like the community there's also a couple of there has been a couple of uh companies around so uh there's Manyverse as a non-profit project there is aho which is a new zealand-based um indigenous uh uh, company essentially they're a company that are building tools for indigenous people based on scuttlebutt and then there's another company called planetary in silicon valley making a traditional looking social network essentially and then it's probably another one but yeah here and there there's a little bit of different um actors and a bunch of users it's an interesting space very interesting. Yeah. I mean, when it's 20,000 people of like, that are really intentional, I'm sure it's a very robust community. And, um, and I know that there's also other decentralized social networks like Mastodon, yeah. um, which has a lot of users, but, um, well, I guess a lot compared to what you just said yeah but i think mastodon has around a million mm -hmm. um but you guys have been around for three years i'm not sure how long mastodon has been around i think i think we've been around five and i think mastodon around seven they definitely okay. grew faster um but also it's interesting to talk about mastodon's community safety problems 
if you remember what I mentioned with the Scuttlebutt servers, that they don't host any data. Uh, the nice thing is that if the server goes down, nothing is lost. No data is lost whatsoever. All the data is still on the phones. They can just make a new server and that's it. So in the Mastodon space, sometimes what happens is that the administrator of the server, the person who's uh, taking care of that computer, uh, they might disagree with the users. They might delete the thing. And then guess what? A bunch of data is lost. And that's, that's always very disappointing. So that's one of the things that we hope we can contribute to as like a new good thing because communities don't need to be a, uh, tied to this uh, person and the decisions they make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know based off of just like their homepage that they do have a lot of issues with scammers too and they have like a list of servers to watch out for. Um, yeah. But what are some other differences that you would say are between um, Manyverse and Mastodon? Oh, well, there's also the local first issue, which is also about data, but like you can't use Mastodon when you're offline and you also can't control it as a user. Um, yeah, it's very different. I think Mastodon is just a small version of Twitter that you could um, host yourself while uh, many verses it's quite something different it's uh, it's like your own it's like your own diary that you can share with people it's always yours you know it's this is my diary you can always write what you want but you can show it to other people they can take a look and these kind of things right yeah it was perceiving that too when i was looking into mastodon um it seems like you can get those broader social interactions, whereas many verses more personalized and intimate. Yeah. And uh, as I said, the invites are very important and uh, really being careful with who you trust and who you connect with. I think those, those are interesting things that set uh, many verses and SSB apart. Um. Yeah. So how did you get into the development of Manyverse? How was it financially supported and how's it being sustained? Yeah, it's a nice story to tell. Um, I've So some years ago, uh, I think it was 2016, um, where I wanted to do something new and I wanted to do something good for society. And I had a hunch that it had to be decentralized because I was seeing how how many problems were coming out of Facebook. Um, so I, did, I actually looked into a bunch of crypto projects and I didn't get excited about any of them. I was like, I don't want to do any of this, um, but maybe there's something here that will be good. Um, and I didn't find anything in the crypto space, but I ended up bumping to Scuttlebutt, which was created by... Uh, so. It was created by a guy called Dominic Tarr. He's a very interesting person. Uh, he lives on a boat. And while living on the boat, he wrote all of the code for Scuttlebutt. And it was really an interesting, really interesting project. And they already worked on computers. There, there's a similar app to Miniverse called Patchwork. Um, and I gave that a try and it was really interesting space. Uh, but I, I noticed that there wasn't any um, mobile app, and that's quite a big deal. Like most of the people who use social networks use it from mobile phones, not from computers. And I wanted to contribute something. At the time, I was doing sort of like part-time consultancy. So I had some time, uh, some spare time for other projects. And that's how I sort of bootstrapped this. And I worked in sort of isolation, or I worked for one year by myself. And then I launched the app and that's when I made this open collective for donations. And it's been a really, really nice surprise to see all the people back in it. You didn't need any money to start do this coding, right? Yeah, yeah, coding is just on the free, on your free time and or spare time. And I, you just sit down and make a lot of code and 
something comes out. <laughs> yeah, and, and since there's no like no servers required, you don't have like investments up front to like put into a bunch of like computers on the internet. You know, you just make an app that knows how to talk to other phones. And so Open Collective Foundation uh, now supports the project solely or do you get funding from elsewhere? So I get funding only from uh, backers at the moment. So individuals who donate uh, through Open Source Collective. And um, in the past, I've gotten uh, some grants from the European Union. There's a new uh, sort of European Union grant project called next generation internet and they've uh they've backed metaverse uh basically twice and that's been really good for like stable you know consistent uh improvements and let's see maybe some other grant will come up amazing so you were able to grow your team and now are you able to do this full time so uh, the team currently consists of me full-time. So I'm currently full-time, but there's no one else full-time. Sometimes there's uh, someone uh, helping as a volunteer. And there's also uh, sometimes some extra grant money or some extra donations. So there's also one other programmer besides me uh, who's working for like one month or two on on the on a miniverse, like a separate sort of miniverse sub project called the desktop version. Uh, so we have like a very tiny team. I think I think that's the usually the case for open source projects. They have a tiny team because the funding is not that uh, big. But I hope that one day we can be at least a handful of people, not just one. Yeah. I mean, that's still really incredible that you're able to do this full time, mostly by the backers that you receive on Open Collective Foundation. And I'm still fairly new to understanding Open Collective Foundation, but I know that initially it was a resource or a platform for open source projects to receive backing. But now it's broadened and mutual aid projects and other types of collectives are able to use the platform to receive um, steady donations. Yeah, exactly. I think, so I've, I've had quite a history with Open Collective uh, since 2016 or 17, if I'm not mistaken. And I remember that back then they were already uh, open to projects that are not just open source. So they had some community projects. Um, I can't remember exactly, you know, a specific example, but it, it wasn't just programming. Um, so they have good roots in like, you know, this kind of mutual aid and community projects. And I think it's a really good thing. One of the best things of Open Collective is transparency. Um, you can see where the money comes from, where it goes. You can see how, how much fees do does open collective itself collect and i think that's, that's something that gives you more uh confidence to donate because you know you know what the money uh you know where it goes to exactly yeah it's direct funding and do you use them as a fiscal sponsor as well yeah, you always have to have a fiscal sponsor. Uh, no, not sponsor. A uh, fiscal host is what it's called. Uh, sponsor would mean that they would have to give money. I, th I think they, I think they give a little money. I I don't know exactly, but usually their their function is to volunteer time to do uh, billing, and you know, they have to do accounting and. Uh, tax reports depending on where, where the host is and that's a pretty big deal if you're like a very tiny project or community it's, it might not be worth opening a, a non-profit or an association or something like that there's a lot of bureaucracy and financial reports you might need an accountant that kind of thing so open collective sort of cuts all of that need and says we'll do it for you and you just need to focus on getting the money and using the money right yeah, it can be difficult to find a 
a fiscal sponsor and receive bigger grants and donations um, as a small collective. So it's an awesome resource for projects at any scale to utilize. Exactly. It's really good. Um, so what are some of the challenges of being a decentralized social network? Oh, um, so I hinted on some of them. I think the biggest one would be the difficulty of deleting. Um, but there's also the difficulty of onboarding people like the invite flow. We've, we've made it much better. It used to be bad, but I think it still needs some help and managing all of that data as well. People don't want to have more than 500 megabytes um, being used by the app. Um, and I think there are also, you know, fundamental questions on how to make the blocking better. I think community safety is one of the things I want to focus on in 2022. And I think, so currently I don't label the app as ready. I don't think it's ready for mainstream. I think whoever uses it has to know some of its um some of its downsides and, and these risks. And I think at some point when I'm like, okay, we've worked enough on community safety, I think this is okay. Um, then I think we'll be able to say, this is version 1.0, you can use it. And uh, we'll, we'll be at that stage, I hope. Wow, you already touched on what was gonna be my next question, which was, some broader app improvements for 1.0. So you really want to focus on community safety. Yeah. Um, and to like uh, expand a little bit on what that means. Um, so it should sound like it's already safe because of the invite flow that I've been talking about. Um, but one of the things that can happen is, so if you just post something new, it's uh, available to anyone who, gets their hands on it at some point so let's say so picture this situation you post something and you are friends with isabel and isabel is friends with bob and bob would get your your post um but what uh and then bob could also have a friend called charles and charles could also get your post um, and you don't know about charles you don't trust charles you know that bob is friend with Isabel, that's fine. So we have to sort of like, so, and that post is sort of public because it can keep on spreading on forever. Um, and we wanna make a new thing called private groups, which would function kind of like Facebook groups. You have like, you know, a group of a hundred people and you say, I wanna post here. I don't want to post beyond this. Mm. And um, that group functionality is very important. And we don't, we don't have that yet. We have only like, here's a post I made to the world, you know? So having this kind of way of stopping data from spreading everywhere, I want it to spread only to these people. Th that kind of thing is important, not just like blocking people. And, you know, blocking is, is, is a reactive measure. You know, we, we need something that's proactive, that is preventive, uh, and precautionary, these kind of things. Right. So right now it's like all the nodes are connected, but you want to figure out how to make them a little bit separate into like smaller yeah. circles. Yeah. But you could also have, you know, concurrent groups like these. I have my family and I have my uh, friends and I have my workmates, you know, people you can, just like groups. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, speaking even broader, how do you envision a changed worldwide web? So I hope that we could get rid, like as a simple goal, I hope we could get rid of ads and tracking and all these kind of things. Um, I hope that we can demonetize the internet. Um, the internet has been monetized and for many cases, it doesn't need to be monetized. We just need, you know, people to use it to get data from A to B, you know, inform my friends, inform my work, you know, 
just we just need communication. We don't need to monetize communication. So I, I'm working for that, and it is quite a challenge. There's a lot of companies that want to keep a hold on their monetization, and um, but it's good future because I think in real life we don't have our interactions monetized. You know, we don't have our mouths <laughs> monetized and our ears. So it would be good if we could just have normal communication. Yes, there's this quote that I wrote down that you said that we don't need internet, we need interconnectivity. Did I say that? I, I don't even remember. <laughs> but I think it really encompasses that because the internet has become, like you said, such a, it's been synonymous with monetization, but really mm. it should be the foundation of just connection. Yeah, people talking to each other. It doesn't need to be more complex than that. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Andre. This has been so insightful. It's just a whole nother world to delve into. And I hope that I can get an invite to Manyverse. <laughs> Yeah, I would love that. I would love to connect with um, that network and explore it and uh, expand it. Thanks. It's it's been really nice to talk about uh, talk about this with you, and I hope um, I hope um, there is an overarching theme of you know helping people to have public goods or things that are good to people without having to pay for them. You know. This podcast runs off of labors of love. There are many ways you can be in reciprocity with us. If you are or know of a collective model that aligns, let's connect so we can spotlight the story. Share episodes, especially with your friends and family who aren't aware of collective models but are unfulfilled with this economy. You can also visit our Open Collective Foundation page in the show notes for ways to gift us in time or money. With your support, we can continue archiving the stories that aren't being elevated but are necessary for our collective elevation.